Hello, and welcome to the April 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, the LGBT community in Alabama finally got some vindication after the Alabama Supreme Court conceded the fight on marriage equality and was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court in the same week last month. Can you start us off with Inri King, where they finally conceded on marriage equality art? Yeah, this is uh, a lawsuit that was brought after the federal district court in uh, early in 2015 held that uh, Alabama had to allow same-sex couples to marry and ordered a local probate judge to issue some marriage licenses to the plaintiffs in the case uh, or ordered recognition in one case. Uh, And some local groups, uh, anti-gay marriage groups, brought a lawsuit in the Alabama Supreme Court asking them to order the probate judges not to issue marriage licenses. And in the course of that, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court issued a decision holding that the ban on same-sex marriage did not violate the Constitution and uh, pointing out that rulings by the federal district court are not necessarily binding on state courts. Uh, so uh, that that was out there at the time that the Obergefell decision was issued by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in June. And subsequent to that, the Alabama Supreme Court asked the parties in that case to submit briefing on the question of what impact, of any, Obergefell had on the Alabama Supreme Court's continuing order to the probate judges and its uh, potential ruling on the merits of uh, the question whether Alabama was required to allow same-sex marriages. Uh, the uh, briefing was quickly accomplished, and uh, the court was asked to uh, reach a decision of some sort, and it just sat. It sat for months. And uh, there were some probate judges who were getting a little itchy about doing something about it. And there were uh, questions about uh, whether judges who had shut down their marriage windows in their offices and weren't issuing licenses to anyone were violating their duties. And, in fact, uh, earlier in the year, Chief Justice Roy Moore on February 8th issued what he called an administrative order which stated uh, that the uh, the Obergefell decision was not binding and that the judges shouldn't go ahead and do anything until the state uh, Supreme Court reached a ruling on the merits. Uh, so finally, finally on March 4th, the court issued a one-sentence order that said, it is ordered that all pending motions and petitions are dismissed. In other words, without any official explanation on behalf of the court as a whole, the court said, we're done with this case, more or less conceding that uh, they're covered by the 11th Circuit's rulings and they're covered by the Federal District Court's rulings. But many of the judges took the occasion to write concurring opinions. Uh, And Chief Justice Roy Moore wrote two of them. Uh, One of them had to do with his long and somewhat uh, weird explanation as to why he was actually participating in this case since at an earlier stage in litigation he had recused himself uh, on the basis of the fact that even before the court had ruled last spring, he had issued an administrative order telling the probate judges not to give out marriage licenses. So he would have been ruling on an appeal of his own order. Uh, he said that's all sort of water under the bridge, and with the Burgerfell it's a whole new game, and so he felt that he didn't have to recuse himself anymore. Uh, and he went on at great length about that to justify what he was doing. But the more interesting, I guess, is his concurring opinion on the merits, which was really more like a dissenting concurrence, in which he said he still thinks Obergefell is an illegitimate decision. And the basis of his reasoning is his view that marriage is an institution that was instituted by God and therefore cannot be changed through courts or legislatures or anything else, that marriage has an essential meaning. It's a man and a woman. It's established by God for the purposes of procreation. And nothing any court can say can change that. 
And this is problematic in a country with a separation of church and state. I would think so. I would think so. Uh, but, you know, he, he has a point that there are references to a deity in some of our founding documents. Uh, and uh, clearly the, uh, the people who formed this government were not proclaiming uh, that this is officially an atheist state, although they f- prohibited an establishment of religion. And early uh, scholarship and court decisions talked about a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, at any rate, it's, it's interesting to read these, uh, these opinions, but of course they don't mean anything because they are not the opinion of the court. Uh, and uh, basically they're going to just take up an awful lot of ink in the Southeast Reporter <laughs> And they're poor law clerks where Judge Moore had to write, you know. Yeah, oh, the clerks must have been very busy on these. I, I have a, a theory that one reason that this took so long was because they were writing these long concurring opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they could have uh, dismissed this case within a week after a burger fell. They didn't even really need briefing. But the judges in uh, Alabama are elected, and so I think there's that's part of it. They want to make sure they're on the record as right. uh being homophobic for and they're, they're sure that's what their constituents support yeah sigh but another other good news uh three days after Henry king the u.s supreme court reversed another homophobic decision of the alabama supreme court in vl versus el uh, and the supreme court has currently got eight members but all eight members signed on to a unanimous peer curiam short opinion reversing the Alabama Supreme Court. To give some of the history on this case, VL and EL were a lesbian couple together from 1995 to 2011. During that time, they had three children via assisted reproductive technology, and they raised them together until breaking up in 2011. They took advantage of the availability of second parent adoptions in the neighboring state of Georgia. It's not completely clear that that is allowed, but they there was they apparently became aware of a judge, at least in Georgia, that was doing this, and went started to rent a house in Alpharetta, Georgia, and in 2006, uh, they got an official uh, adoption decree from a judge in Georgia that said uh, VL was now one of the legal parents of these kids, and made it clear in that a decree that EL was still had parenting rights as well. She didn't have to relinquish her parenting rights to allow VL to adopt. Um, Which, of course, is totally illegal in Georgia, right? Well, it's it's <laughs> circumspect, right? Because well, there's no Georgia Supreme Court decision right, but on there's, the Right, but there's an adoption statute right. that makes it pretty clear that uh, the rights of the uh, original parents are to be quashed when new parents are adopting. Right. And uh, it's these archaic adoption statutes right. that still exist in most states that are relied on by those courts that refuse to approve second-parent adoptions unless the birth parent gives up her parental rights. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, uh, there's this court in Fulton County in Georgia who's willing to grant second-parent adoptions, basically, and yeah. the women took advantage of that and then yeah. moved back to Alabama. Yeah. So unfortunately, like in many of these cases that we talk about, the lesbians break up and the birth mother decides to uh, try to cut the other woman completely out of the picture. So VL went to court and was successful in the family court, trial court level in Alabama with getting um, some visitation of the kids. But EL did not concede and continued appealing. She lost at the intermediate level, but the Alabama Supreme Court saw saw a chance to do something to follow up gay rights in Alabama and looked at this full faith and credit question presented here because there's a Georgia judgment that is trying to be enforced in Alabama. And they said uh, back in September that there's a jurisdictional exception to full faith and credit and that that jurisdictional exception came into play here because it was uh, the Georgia court that entered the adoption decree did not have subject matter jurisdiction to enter that in the first place. Um, and of course, there's, it's highly odd for an Alabama court to make such a ruling about what a Georgia court did. Well, it would, it would depend on how clear the question of uh, subject matter jurisdiction was. Yeah. But the problem in this case was that under statute, the relevant Georgia court had jurisdiction over all cases of adoption. Right. 
But but the uh, Alabama Supreme Court was taking the somewhat odd position that because it disagreed that the adoption statute allowed second parent adoptions, it could find that the court didn't have jurisdiction to grant such an adoption. Yes. Which was really a disagreement on the merits. Yeah. And for folks that aren't totally familiar with sort of civil procedure law, this was a very odd, questionable decision. And certainly at odds with full faith and credit, generally accepted principles. So VL luckily got the National Center for Lesbian Rights and Paul Smith at Jenner and Block to take up her cause. They filed a cert petition with the U.S. Supreme Court in November. And in December, they were able to obtain emergency, uh, an emergency stay from the U.S. Supreme Court, which allowed her to continue seeing the kids while the case was pending. And then on March 7th, we got uh, the official opinion from the court. They never asked for full briefing or oral argument on the issues in the case, because apparently all eight of them thought this was pretty straightforward without any further commentary. Um, they reaffirmed in the opinion that full faith and credit is an exacting command, and uh, a state may not simply disregard the judgment of a sister state because it disagrees with the reasons underlying the judgment or deems it to be wrong on the merits. And then they then took a look at the Alabama Supreme Court's reliance on the jurisdictional exception. And they said, this is usually a very limited inquiry. And the Alabama Supreme Court really overstepped uh, its bounds here by, by looking at this provision in Georgia's, the Georgia adoption statute um, that seems to require relinquishing all of one parent's rights to let another adopt and somehow finding that that was a jurisdictional part of the law. Neither the Georgia Supreme Court nor any Georgia appellate court has construed this particular provision as being jurisdictional. And the Supreme Court said there's sort of a generally accepted principle that you don't consider sort of ambiguous statutory provisions to be jurisdictional uh, if you can help it, because it creates a lot of other problems by necessarily finding that all these different uh, provisions are, are jurisdictional. Right. As a, as a dissenting judge in the Alabama Supreme Court had commented, the uh, the majority's decision placed in danger all out-of-state adoptions in uh, Alabama. That, yeah. that you know, if the court had any doubts about whether the out-of-state family court judge had a right under state law to grant that adoption, they could treat it as jurisdictional and refuse to extend full faith and credit. Yeah. And this would uh, really totally upend the system by which we assume that court-ordered adoptions will be respected everywhere. Yeah. And it's been sort of a central tenet of gay family law since sort of the rise of these second-parent adoptions in the 90s, that this is a way to protect exactly what happened here. The couple breaks up and the non-biological parent is really screwed if these second-parent adoptions are not recognized and enforced. Um, so it was a very important ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court that these second-parent adoptions have to be recognized. And I think it's it's important to caution people because the media coverage of this tended to be somewhat uncomprehending. Uh, I think most general news reporters aren't into all the subtleties of full faith and credit mm -hmm. and federal jurisdiction and everything. And so there were lots of misleading headlines along the lines that the Supreme Court is endorsing second parent adoptions. Mm -hmm. Well, they weren't endorsing second parent adoptions. They were basically saying if a judge in one state grants a second parent adoption. The judges in other states have to recognize that under the full faith and credit clause. Not because we think second parent adoption is good, but because we think full faith and credit is a constitutional requirement. Yeah. And it really would be, you know, crazy if one state's judgments could just be completely ignored by another state. It's sort of one of the founding principles of why our national government, system of government right. works. Well, that's why it's in the Constitution. Yeah. You know, they, they said, we, we want to make a country here, and it's not going to be a country if people can just flee from one jurisdiction to another to escape court orders. Yeah. So, good results for the Alabama LGBT community last month and uh, sort of getting beyond some of the intransigence of their uh, state Supreme Court and getting some, getting some justice in that state. All right, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll stay in the South and discuss a very busy month for state legislatures there.
We are back discussing several anti-LGBT bills passed in southern states during the last few weeks, as well as responses and backlash. Can we start in North Carolina, Art? Okay, we can start in North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> North Carolina, strange place. So during March, uh, the North Carolina legislature provoked into action by the Charlotte City Council which had passed a uh, local ordinance banning discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And, of course, uh, because it covered public accommodations, the issue naturally arose. Does that mean that a transgender man who's really born a woman can use a man's restroom and that a transgender woman who's really born a man can use a women's restroom and what will happen when they start assaulting people in the restrooms? Uh, well, this is, this is weird, of course, uh, because scores and scores of, uh, of municipalities have passed these ordinances over the past decade or so and uh, more than a dozen states have these statutes. And these have been in effect for a significant period of time, and there is not one documented case in which someone masquerading as a member of the other sex has stormed into a restroom under the cover of one of these statutes in order to uh, assault somebody. It's, it's just – it's sort of bizarre. I mean they're, they're raising it as a privacy issue. They're saying that it violates the privacy of women and girls for men to be able to access their restrooms. And the people who are making these arguments, uh, and it's clear from looking at some of these statutes that are passed, the people who are making these arguments don't believe that it's possible that someone could be transgender. That's what it really comes down mm -hmm. to. They believe that transgender women are men pretending to be women. And some of them say as much on the floors of state legislatures mm -hmm. in debate. Uh, there, uh, it's, and when we get to the uh, Mississippi statute, we see it spelled out. Uh, so this is, this is behind some of it. But what's more significant is this is part of an overall backlash engineered by anti-gay groups in response to the Obergefell decision. Mm -hmm. uh, they're looking for any way they can to roll back LGBT rights protections uh, and to protect the right of people who detest homosexuality, transgenderism, and same-sex marriages uh, to be free from any coercion or punishment by the government for taking any action they want to take consistent with their religious beliefs. That's what it's at bottom all about. So in North Carolina, uh, the passage of the Charlotte Ordinance, which was supposed to go into effect on April 1st, was the pretext for the calling of a special session of the North Carolina legislature to pass what became known as HB2, House Bill Number 2. And to hear the press talk about it, this is just a bill that's focused on access to restrooms, but that's not the case. Uh, what the bill does is, first of all, it says that any restroom in a public school or other public building in North Carolina must designate must be designated if it has multiple access. It's not a single uh, occupant uh, restroom. Anything that's a multiple occupant restroom must be designated as either male or female. And the only people who can access a restroom, such a restroom, are people whose gender is identified on their birth certificate is consistent with the designation of that restroom. So someone who is designated as a woman on their birth certificate can only access a restroom that's designated for women, regardless if she has transitioned, uh, unless, unless it seems, uh, if one is interpreting the somewhat less than clear language of the statute, unless they've gotten a revised birth certificate as a result of a completed transition that includes surgical alteration. Now, there's a real question here about how this is going to be ever enforced. Uh, some people have jokingly called this the papers to pee law. Right. Well, my, my view is that the next time uh, a transgender person happens to observe Governor McCrory going into a men's room in the state capitol, they should quickly hustle over there and demand to see proof that he's male. I mean, in this, I saw in SNL they joked about uh, one of the comedians in one of the skits was joking that there's no bouncers in bathrooms. You know, I mean, in, in a regular bathroom, who checks anyone about who's going in and out necessarily? Well, well this is the problem, uh, and I've, I've read some cases, the pretty horrific cases. Uh, 
virtually always a transgender person, sometimes just a gender nonconforming person, who goes to use a restroom and then gets harassed or assaulted by people who think that that person is in the wrong restroom. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there is a decision by the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal uh, within the past few weeks involving a, a transgender woman who used the women's restroom and in a restaurant and a bouncer came in and beat her up pretty badly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this decision awarded uh, substantial damages uh, in the case and held that it was a violation of the public accommodations law in Ontario. But the, the people who are at risk in these situations of violence are almost always transgender or gender nonconforming mm -hmm. people, usually gender nonconforming women who are challenged when they go into a women's restroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at any rate, the bill passed overwhelmingly in the legislature, and it didn't just address this restroom issue. Uh, it's, it's important to note that its commands in terms of gender-designated restrooms apply to public schools and to government buildings. They don't apply in the private sector. Uh, but another thing to keep in mind is that North Carolina does not ban sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination in the private sector. A handful of local communities have passed uh, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, so another thing that this bill does is it preempts all local anti-discrimination laws. Not just on the issue of sexual orientation and gender identity. This is another misunderstanding that has been somewhat perpetuated by the general media coverage. It basically says that the issue of discrimination in employment and public accommodations is one that must be addressed at a statewide level we're looking for uniformity throughout the state. Therefore, localities are preempted. It's not just that they can't uh, legislate on sexual orientation and gender identity. They can't legislate on anything. Uh, and in its place, this bill establishes a state anti-discrimination law covering a limited number of categories, among which they include, quote-unquote, biological sex. So you can't discriminate based on biological sex. But they also do not allow, they say that uh, no private right of action can be construed from this. So no one can sue for discrimination in North Carolina. Your, your remedy is to file a complaint with a state agency, which itself is not given any authority to instigate lawsuits. Uh, its authority is to investigate and try to persuade the parties to settle, but not to command anything. Uh, so they basically gutted uh, public accommodation and employment discrimination enforcement in North Carolina as part of this bill. Uh, in addition to that, in a totally unrelated part of the bill, they divest localities of their authority to legislate on a variety of other topics. Uh, they say anything that could be related to our state wage and hour law, which includes child labor provisions and uh, the terms by which contractors employ people, uh, they they loaded it up with sort of a right-wing pinata, <laughs> something <laughs> along those lines. And it's – so the thing was passed, uh, and it was introduced, passed, and signed into law within one legislative day. That is, there weren't extensive hearings. There wasn't any study. There wasn't any discussion or time for debate uh, other than a very limited debate on the floor where the Democrats just expressed their outrage. And the governor – signed it that evening in a private ceremony, just, you know, right away, without consulting anybody, without hearing from affected parties. And while this is all incredibly depressing, it's going to be good in terms of the lawsuit, because it's well, one of the it's, factors yeah. for under Arlington Heights is uh, a law that passes like this. Yeah, and so very quickly, we got a lawsuit on file, uh, which is a, uh, a joint project of the ACLU and Lambda Legal. Uh, they filed this lawsuit against the governor, against the attorney general, against the University of North Carolina, uh, which is going to be required under the statute uh, to restrict restroom access, etc., uh, against the board of governors of the university and against the chairman of the board of governors. Uh, one of the people who was sued, uh, Attorney General Cooper, as the head of the state law department, was expected to defend this statute. But Mr. Cooper, uh, who is a statewide elected official, happens to be a Democrat who's planning to run for governor against Mr. McCrory this fall. And he quickly scoped out the landscape and said, no way I'm defending this. 
he said he, you know, he got the complaint. It was served on him. He's a named defendant. Took one quick read through and said, yeah, I agree. <laughs> this is unconstitutional. I'm not going to defend this. So he signified to the governor he's not going to defend it. So the governor and the university have to find their own lawyer to defend it. Uh, and in terms of the legal theories underlying the lawsuit, uh, the lawsuit is brought under the 14th Amendment, uh, due process and equal protection claims, and it's brought under Title IX of the Education Amendments Act, uh, which prohibits uh, educational institutions that get federal financial assistance, which is just about all of them if they're in the public sector, uh, from discriminating because of sex. And it doesn't say because of biological sex. It says because of sex. And the U.S. Department of Education, which is the agency charged with enforcement, has construed that to mean that transgender people are entitled to use the restroom in an educational institution that is consistent with their gender identity and presentation. Mm -hmm. And I emphasize gender identity and presentation. If you are presenting as male, you're dressed as male, and it's not just because you decided to wear a costume that day. It's because you identify as a man, even though your birth certificate says female. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been uh, diagnosed with gender dysphoria. You have uh, been taking hormones. You are grooming and dressing and presenting in a particular way. Uh, you know, if you go into the quote-unquote wrong restroom, the one that doesn't look like you look in terms of who should be using it, you're going to get in trouble. And uh, this is a state where uh, a lot of people are packing firearms. And I wouldn't want to be in a situation of uh, someone who looks totally male walking into a women's restroom when those women are carrying their little pistols, you know. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to be in that situation in, uh, in North Carolina. So the case has been assigned to U.S. District Judge Thomas D. Schroeder, who I advised was appointed by George W. Bush. We'll see where that goes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, Attorney General Roy Cooper, who is a defendant, is not defending the statute. Uh, so that's North Carolina. And it's going to be a good chance to dust off Romer versus Evans on its 20th anniversary, possibly. It, it, it might on the issue of the preemption. Uh, now, this is distinguishable uh, in the sense that Romer, we were dealing with the constitutional amendment that specifically on its face focused on homosexuality yeah. and said you may not protect homosexuals from discrimination. That's pretty clear in, in terms of its uh, bias. When you look at this, you look at the statute, it doesn't say any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, homosexuals and uh, bisexuals and transgender people are discriminated against by being not mentioned, by saying we preempt all the local ordinances with the state ordinance, which doesn't mention these categories. So you're going to have to get into legislative intent and effects. Although plenty of the legislators and the governor have said things oh, yeah. that it's are proving, red proving, flags. Proving their intent is not yes. going to be difficult, especially if the court is willing to indulge the way the uh, Supreme Court and the uh, federal district and circuit courts up north uh, did in the Doma case, where they looked at statements in the legislative history and said, well, it's clear that animus against gay people was the reason Doma was passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the arguments with which the federal government tried uh, before they changed sides in the cases uh, to defend DOMA was that Congress had a rational basis for wanting there to be one definition of marriage throughout the country for purposes of federal benefits and you know, various federal statutes that would simplify matters. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Supreme Court, in its decision striking down the Defense of Marriage Act, didn't even think that was a serious enough argument to bother refuting. Mm -hmm. You know, they just said this, the the uh, government hasn't advanced any justifications that meet the test mm -hmm. without going into the details. Yeah. It's very interesting. But in, in this case, it's going to be a little more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I would say uh, that another arrow in the quiver here might be Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64, which wasn't part of this lawsuit because Title VII requires exhaustion of administrative remedies. And which means you need complainants who have actually encountered discrimination before you can go to the agency and file a complaint. And then you need a right to sue letter to go to federal court. So depending how fast this litigation moves, uh, there may or may not end up being Title VII cases on file. And I know the uh, commissioner on the EEOC, Haifa said in an interview yesterday they are ready and willing to take complaints. And right. she clarified that State law is not a defense to violations of federal law. Right. And, uh, and Title VII does apply uh, to all employers that meet their jurisdictional requirements. So 
very small local businesses are not covered by Title VII. Yeah. But apart from that, if you're working for a national corporation in North Carolina, or if you're even working for a moderately large employer with 15 or more employees, you're covered by federal law. And although it hasn't yet been established at the Supreme Court level, the Title VII bans sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination, we're making progress mm -hmm. in that area. In fact, uh, in another story in Law Notes, which we hadn't slated for discussion in this podcast, we have uh, federal district judges in Connecticut and Arizona uh, which have accepted uh, Title VII cases in, in Connecticut on a gender identity claim and in Arizona on, uh, on a gender identity claim. We're having a little slower progress on getting sexual orientation claims in the federal district courts, but the EEOC is pushing that as well. Uh, now, the other states you wanted to talk about uh, for this month, we have uh, a happy story from Georgia. Yeah. Uh, Georgia passed a Religious Freedom Act uh, which they call the Pastor Protection Act. It's, it's kind of strange. I mean, we already know that under the First Amendment, no state could get away with ordering any clergy to perform any ceremonies that the clergy don't want to perform. Okay, but the people in Georgia, evidently reacting to panic among the clergy in that state about how they might be required to perform same-sex weddings, well, this statute made sure that they couldn't be required to perform same-sex weddings. In fact... It even provided that no member of the public could be forced to attend one if it offended their religious sensibilities. And I'm thinking, what are they doing here? I mean, does anyone think that under the First Amendment, the state could compel anyone to attend a religious ceremony of any kind? It's bizarre. So, well, the governor vetoed it uh, after intensive lobbying by the business community in Georgia. Uh, and... Uh, he was pretty open about it. He didn't veto because he disagreed with it. He vetoed it because the business community told him that it's going to be bad for Georgia if he doesn't veto it. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was some talk about trying to override the veto, but that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Yeah. But the, uh, the one that uh, came at the end of the month, uh, as we were approaching our deadline for the April issue of Law Notes, the Mississippi legislature had put its final touches on uh, this Mississippi statute which is called uh, HB 1523. And HB 1523 is a total horror show. Uh, at the time we were going to deadline, we didn't know if the governor would sign it or veto it. He signed it a few days after our deadline. Uh, so uh, we would expect that a lawsuit will be eventuating pretty soon. Uh, this is called the Protecting Freedom of Conscience from Government Discrimination Act. And it basically says that anyone who has a sincerely held religious belief or moral conviction that doesn't even have to be based on religion uh, are protected, but only the following beliefs are protected. Not all religious beliefs or moral convictions, only the following. One, marriage is or should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman. Two, sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. And three, male or female, refer to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at the time of birth. So if you have a sincere religious belief that anyone born with a penis is a man forever and anyone born with a vagina is a woman forever, you have a right to believe that, to live it, in your business, in your everyday activities, in how you relate to other people, and the government may not take any action against you for doing that. Well, I don't think there are any laws in Mississippi under which they could take action against you before this Well, they now made it ironclad. They, they made it ironclad. Uh, <laughs> they, they basically have said to businesses in Mississippi, uh, you don't like gay couples? You don't have to deal with gay couples. You disapprove of people who have sex outside of marriage, and we mean traditional marriage? You don't have to deal with those people. One know? commentator I read has gone as far to say that this reinstates segregation in Mississippi. I mean, it's that. It says nothing about race. Well, for gay people, segregating yeah. gay people. Well, yeah, it's, it's obviously a statute that is entirely motivated by animus against gay people. Oh, my God. But it only protects people based on their religious or moral convictions. But it doesn't say how we're going to determine whether they are sincerely held or not. 
Now, this and, and this raises a very interesting point that was a, a point of argument between the majority and the dissent in the Hobby Lobby case. Because in the Hobby Lobby case, the majority said, we will assume the sincerity of religious belief of the owners of Hobby Lobby uh, that abortion is immoral and birth control is immoral, etc., etc. Uh, and the dissent said, well, just a minute. What if a company is just using this as a pretext in order that they don't – because for their political views, they just don't want to uh, be forced to provide contraception for women. You know, what, what if this has nothing to do with religious or morality beliefs? Uh, how do we determine the sincerity? And the majority takes the position, well, it would violate the First Amendment for a court to inquire into the sincerity of someone's religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. We've got to take them at their word. And this, to me, it harks back to the Boy Scouts case. You know, we're going back like uh, 15 yeah. or more years now where, where the Supreme Court says we're not going to question their statement that they have the following moral views, et cetera. So we don't inquire into that. And the dissent said, just a minute. This is totally inconsistent with the way they've been running their organization for 100 years. So, you know, it's, it's really bizarre what, has been, what is uh, being enacted here. Uh, and uh, this one is going to attract litigation. Uh, there was a memorandum that was circulated uh, through Columbia Law School, but it was professors from seven different law schools, uh, con law professors, writing an extended, detailed, well-sourced memorandum about how this bill violates the Establishment Clause. And it's very rare uh, to find much Establishment Clause litigation outside of the area of uh, public monies being spent for religious activities. And this bill isn't about public monies being spent for religious activities as such. It's about privileging religious beliefs and exempting them from complying with the basic rules of a civil society. Now, and, and in some ways, uh, this was heavily symbolic legislation because not only was there no prohibition on sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination in Mississippi there was on the state a level. There was religious freedom law. Yeah. Right? Well, there was no protection against discrimination on the state level. There also was no protection against discrimination with some very, very minor exceptions on the local level. There were about half a dozen municipalities that followed this recent trend of passing inclusivity resolutions, calling on people to be nice but not creating any kind of enforceable anti-discrimination law. I think Jackson was the only community that had anything that went beyond uh, mere pious exclamations about inclusivity. So uh, unlike North Carolina, where about half a dozen local ordinances were wiped out, uh, in this case, no one had any protection against discrimination anyway unless they got it from federal law. Now, Title VII, of course, is still in effect in Mississippi, and so is Title IX. And I think there's going to be litigation in that state. Uh, There's a question in my mind whether the state demanding that public education institutions which receive federal money violate Title IX, whether that itself could be considered uh, a violation of Title IX or whether they would have to go based on individual cases or, Mm -hmm. you know, individual transgender people suing their school or whatever. Uh, In in the North Carolina litigation, the three named plaintiffs – are, uh, two are employees of the University of North Carolina, and one is a student. Uh, the One of the employees and the student are transgender, and the other employee is a lesbian, and they say that uh, these rules are violating their rights, are subjecting them to potential discrimination, and that's the basis of their standing. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. Uh, there are bills pending elsewhere uh, that may be enacted in the coming weeks, uh, There are bills uh, just focused on schools. There are bills that are more broadly focused uh, but still are mainly focused on restrooms. Uh, In reaction to what happened in North Carolina, a bill has been introduced in South Carolina, and it basically just listed the public restroom provisions out of the North Carolina bill. It didn't include the rest. It didn't uh, include something about preempting all local ordinances on anti-discrimination. But – we're going to see this around the country. This is a new wave of reaction, and uh, we'll have to resort to the courts to see if we can get them overturned. That's sort of a dispiriting month, but uh, we'll take a short break, and when we return, uh, we'll stay in Mississippi and talk about some positive news out of there in uh, the lawsuit to strike that state's ban on adoption by same-sex couples. 
We're back discussing another triumphant win for Robbie Kaplan and the Magnolia State. A federal judge recently enjoined enforcement of the state's ban on same-sex couples adopting. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yes. Uh, this is a decision by U.S. District Judge Daniel P. Jordan III on March 31st, just in time for our deadline for the April issue, in Campaign for Southern Equality Against Mississippi Department of Human Services. Mississippi has a uh, had a statutory ban on adoptions by anybody except traditionally married different sex couples uh, so single parents or well single people could adopt but unmarried couples could not adopt whether they were different sex or same sex uh, so the big issue after the Obergefell decision now that same sex couples who are already married and living in in Massachusetts they married out of state or same-sex couples who got married in, in Mississippi after Obergefell, could they jointly adopt a child or could they do second-parent adoptions? And the position of the Missouri – of the uh, Mississippi officials was that we still believe that a different-sex couple is the ideal parents, married couple or the ideal parents for a child. And so we're going to continue – uh, to exclude from the foster parent system, which is a mechanism for people uh, to get children to adopt, or direct adoptions. We're, we're just going to uh, discourage and not uh, allow married same-sex couples to adopt children. Uh, so this was challenged in, in this case, and the federal district judge ruled on a motion for a preliminary injunction. So this isn't a final ruling on the merits, but from reading the opinion, it sounds like it at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, a preliminary injunction against the continued enforcement of this policy. Uh, and the judge said, well, look, the Obergefell case really decides this case. Uh, even though Obergefell itself is full of mysteries regarding what exactly its doctrinal holding is. He said, Obergefell does not make clear the basis for judicial review of state policies that disadvantage married same-sex couples. Uh, but, he said, the Obergefell decision did make clear that same-sex couples are entitled, if they're married, to recognition of their marriage and full recognition of marriage as a unified whole, which includes all the rights and benefits of marriage. Uh, so from there, it's a short step to saying that one of the rights of marriage is being able to jointly adopt a child. And therefore, if the state wants to prohibit this, they have to have a significant justification. Now, we're not sure about the level of judicial review here, whether it should be uh, strict scrutiny or heightened scrutiny, although I think the judge is leaning toward heightened scrutiny here on the theory that uh, something beyond traditional deferential rational basis review was at work in Obergefell. Uh, So the judge says, uh, the marriage laws enforced by the respondents are in essence unequal, said the Supreme Court. Same-sex couples are denied all the benefits accorded to opposite-sex couples and are barred from exercising a fundamental right. Uh, So starting from that position, uh, Judge Jordan says, quote, while it may be hard to discern a precise test, the court extended its holding to marriage-related benefits, which includes the right to adopt, and it did so despite those who urge restraint while marriage-related benefits cases work their way through the lower courts. And he pointed out that Chief Justice Roberts, in his dissenting opinion, bemoaned the fact that the broad sweeping ruling in favor of marriage equality and marriage recognition meant that all of these individual benefits-type cases will never really come up to the level of the Supreme Court. They're all, in effect, decided by the Obergefell decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the court took that position. Uh, he said it would be difficult, however to argue that unmarried same-sex couples are similarly situated to married couples in relation to the adoption of children. So this doesn't address, this opinion doesn't address the possibility of a long-term same-sex couple who have not married being able to adopt jointly. That's left for another day. And in fact, there were several couples who were uh, co-plaintiffs in this case. One of the couples hadn't been married yet when the complaint was filed. Uh, they subsequently got married, but the judge dropped them from the case. And in fact, a large part of this opinion uh, had to do with standing issues and with who was being sued. And uh, the governor was sued, the attorney general, lots of people were sued, 
the court said most of those people couldn't be sued because they didn't have any kind of operative authority in terms of approving or forbidding adoptions. So uh, the court narrowed down the defendants to the executive director of the state's Department of Human Services. So that, going forward, is the only defendant in this case. And so what we have here is a preliminary injunction. Uh, I think it would make sense for the state to settle at this point because they had already signaled. They said, uh, we don't plan to get in the way of married same-sex couples who want to be foster parents or who want to adopt. But the court said, well, that doesn't move the case because there's a statute there. <laughs> so, uh, so it's still a live case. Uh, but it makes it pretty clear, I think, after the preliminary injunction that it would make sense for the state to settle. Although recent actions by state officials indicate they may not be operating from a standpoint of Rational. making life easier for <laughs> gay couples. Especially since the governor just signed into law this uh, <laughs> offensive statute. It's really – it's – it's to scream. Let me tell you. One step forward, two steps backward. Right. Um, we'll take our short, last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a different federal judge who did not think Obergefell had necessarily even settled the question of marriage equality in Puerto Rico. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. A federal judge in Puerto Rico bizarrely decided that Obergefell did not apply uh, in that island last month. Can you tell us why, Art? Yeah, you see, see, it seems Puerto Rico isn't a state. And for textualists, interpreting the 14th Amendment, they say it says that no state shall deprive any person of due process or equal protection. And so uh, Judge uh, Juan M. Perez Jimenez looked at that and said, well, that doesn't seem to apply to Puerto Rico. And he recurred to some very old Supreme Court cases uh, which had indicated that because of the unusual status of Puerto Rico, not every federal law or constitutional provision necessarily applies there. Uh, but what he didn't cite and what was quickly brought to the attention of the First Circuit was a U.S. Supreme Court decision from 1976 examining Board of Engineers versus Flores de Otero, uh, a ruling uh, opinion by Justice Harry Blackman, which said, the court's decisions respecting the rights of the inhabitants of Puerto Rico have been neither unambiguous nor exactly uniform. The nature of this country's relationship to Puerto Rico was vigorously debated within the court as well as within the Congress. It is clear now, however, that the protections accorded either by the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment or the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the Fourteenth Amendment apply to residents of Puerto Rico. Okay, Judge Perez Jimenez, what do you say to them apples? You know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that the residents of Puerto Rico are protected by the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, even though Puerto Rico is not a state. It's settled law. So you cannot refuse this. So uh, Lambda Legal, which represents the plaintiffs in this case, filed a petition with the First Circuit for mandamus, for an order to the district court to enter and This judge judgment. is also a judge that did not think pre-Obergefell. Uh, right. That there he was had ruled against. That's election. what this case was about. Yeah. So uh, he, he had ruled against. I think we have an, an elderly, I think he was appointed by Jimmy Carter, so oh. I think he may be an elderly judge who may not be on, on joining the bandwagon of accepting yeah. gay people. Well, in any event, although it's, it's it, we normally don't report on stuff that happened after the end of the month, but uh, we're, we're recording this on uh, April 8th, and on April 7th, by a per curiam opinion, the First Circuit smashed Judge Perez Jimenez. Uh, the, uh, it's kind of funny uh, because they said in their opinion, the district court's ruling errs in so many respects that it is hard to know where to begin. <laughs> I mean, they cite the Otero case. They say the Supreme Court has already decided this question. They said our prior mandate was clear because uh, this judge had ruled back in 2014 to dismiss a marriage equality case. It was on appeal to the First Circuit. And uh, after Obergefell, the First Circuit had remanded the case back to the district court. Uh, and their mandate, they said, we agree with the party's joint position that the ban is unconstitutional. Mandate to issue forthwith. So they sent the case back to the judge basically with the direction 
to enter judgment for the plaintiffs. And he refused. And so now they're saying, uh, well, we can't exactly send this back to the same judge. It seems like he doesn't want to cooperate. You know, he doesn't want to play ball. Uh, so they said uh, they're issuing the writ of mandamus. The petition uh, for the writ is granted. The case is remitted to be assigned randomly by the clerk to a different judge to enter judgment in favor of the petitioners promptly and to conduct any further proceedings necessary in this action. So on uh, April 7th, the clerk immediately spun the wheel, uh, omitting Judge Perez Jimenez's name, and assigned the case to another judge. It was uh, Judge Gustavo A. Gelpi. And Judge Gelpi promptly issued an order declaring unconstitutional the Puerto Rican same-sex marriage ban, but not entering judgment. He said, uh, to adequately ensure that the instant order resolves all matters between the parties, a conference is set for Monday, April 11th, for the counsel of the parties to come in. And he said, and over the weekend, will you please work out a stipulation that I can approve? Now, there is one issue remaining, and it, it could be a very interesting issue. Uh, does the court award attorney's fees and costs to the plaintiffs? The plaintiffs lost at the district court. The First Circuit vacated the district court opinion and remanded with orders to enter judgment for plaintiffs. The district court refused. The plaintiffs sought a writ of mandamus from the Court of Appeals, which issued it. And Are they the prevailing parties in this case? They've had to do a lot of motion practice here. Should they get attorney's fees? And I would say yes, and I think that's the remaining business. And I hope the Lambda attorneys get a trip to Puerto Rico for this conference, at least after all this headaches and drama. You don't think they should have to use local counsel? <laughs> they should fly down there this yes. weekend to work out the stipulation. I hope they get at least some kind of fun trip out of it. And then as, as part of the attorney's fees and costs, this trip should be paid for by the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, you're right. There you go. But the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico is bankrupt. Do we really want to impose that? <laughs> or they're close to it. You're right. You're right. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in May.